They were high school sweethearts that got married and had a kid. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Brunigs. Welcome back, everybody, to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. This is Liz Brunig. This is my husband, Matt. Hi, everyone. Uh, you must be winding down after the big turkey day. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Woo. Woo. Uh, Love nap. That. Took a nap, probably. Took a big turkey nap. Because of the drugs in the turkey yeah, or something. Yeah, I always read about some kind of sedative in the turkey. There's something like that. The real end of that But every then year. Every, they say that you would have to eat like a million turkeys for it to affect you. Yeah, I find it unlikely. It's probably just like, you know, you're just full. And when you get full, you get sleepy. But I, I find that as likely as anything. Also, when you get cozy. Yeah. You get sleepy, you're warm. You're also tired. Yeah. And, you know, just because it can be kind of a whip-ass also, Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's a big whip-ass. It can be a bit of a whip-ass. Hope you all ate well. Had the the uh, the sweet potatoes, the stuffing. Yeah, all the 1970s food. The rolls. Uh, and I hope you're you're having a good day. Uh, today we're not doing hot topics, but yeah. we are thinking, thanking uh, our our friend of the cast who made our incredible uh, theme song. Yeah, uh, Tom Wayman. Yeah, he was the uh, the genius behind the theme song. Thank you. He wrote it. He performed it. I double checked with him to see if if he's okay being associated with. Such a low quality, low effort podcast. And and for some reason, he was okay with he it. He said, "Sure, throw my name out there." So yeah, thank you. He's on Twitter at Tom Wayman W E Y M A N. Thank you, Tom. This so. song is great. It's uh, probably the highest quality, highest effort thing about the podcast. No, it's great. It it's creates the illusion for new listeners. They yeah. get that song and like, oh, this is good. This is like some NPR level shit. Yeah. And then. You know, mm, for at least content, a minute, for yeah. at least a minute, they're on that. And then, you know, and then it's a disappointment from there. But you live in the illusion for a minute, you know, and maybe you can justify the Patreon for that one beautiful golden minute. Yeah, I think I think it could work and it could prime them. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, this is good. This is yeah, good. You know, and good people, stuff. you know, your attitude matters. Yeah. They're like a total bullshit podcast. It's just two people sitting in their living room talking into mics wouldn't have a theme song. Right, right. This must, yeah. We're yeah. At, no, we have a studio. How wrong they are. Um, but so thank you, Tom. And uh, we're getting past uh, hot topics today uh, because we want to talk to you about something that we've been talking about a lot: uh, the blitzkrieg of the senses, the war on the will, the overload, the hypersaturation, the hedonic treadmill of a consumer society. Yes, that is the topic of the day, and I must say, um, you know, I've I've spent many years of my life, as you know, I guess now moving on 15 to 16 years, thinking about 
uh, capitalism and uh, economic justice and these sorts of things. And I tend to be focused on, you know, labor and capital and welfare. Those are, in fact, the three tags that I have on my website. <laughs> Those are That's what I'm limited to. And I've always been a little bit reluctant to talk about consumer markets. You know, if you yeah. think about in a given economy, or at least our kind of economy, you have three kinds of markets. You right. have labor markets where you go and you buy people's labor. Mm-hmm. You have capital markets where you buy and sell ownership of companies and debt and sure. real estate and physical materials. And then you have the consumer markets where, you know, the labor and the capital have come together to produce a product. Yeah. And then you go out and buy that product for your own consumption. Yeah. You know, food, clothes, these sorts of things. Right. And there's always been this edge, I feel like, especially in the 90s, that was real much like consumerism is bad you had like the ad busters you had that guy that was yeah. like the churches stopped shopping and so on and that always like rubbed me the wrong way because it one it seemed to be very focused on like these dumb rubes like to buy f- buy phones and they they want yeah. it yeah they want nice clothes these morons and i was like that's kind of weird i'm not yeah. really into that and then the second thing, as someone who was very focused on like poverty and so on, I was yeah. like, what the hell? Like these people need to shop more. <laughs> like they should yeah. have the ability to have more goods. With that all said, that has sort of been my initial reluctance and why I've avoided it, it for so many years. It was also the tone and the aesthetics of that movement were like accursedly Gen X. That's true. Very Gen X is a good point. Yeah, yeah it was aesthetically off-putting, though a yeah. lot of the left is, frankly. Um, well, you know, if you're just going to put it right out there, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but usually you got to look past the fact that some yeah. people are annoying and like that's going to be the case anywhere. Sure. Um, but this is one where it's been especially annoying and often it goes along with politics that aren't even particularly radical. It's very much like... Uh, self-improvement you know if you can control your shopping you can have a better higgy life or something like that like which is against sort of collective liberation and you know it's there's been a lot of problems over the years for me to take this on yeah but more recently i've become more inclined and more interested in critiques of the the consumer market critiques of you know how that works buying and selling Mm. and like the actual products and how dangerous they are and how you know how often unhealthy they are and all the rest of the things they do to you i mean that's something i've been focused on for a while not because of any particular interest in consumerism per se um but because of an interest in the will which is something i kind of blather on about a lot that i don't you know i don't know do you find that argument interesting or just kind of hokey no it's a big part of it i mean it's a big part of it the the assumption in in the consumer markets is that consumer market you know people have a certain will which we might right. describe as a preference yeah. that's usually how it goes but underlying a preference is a will Um, and then the consumer market is really good at satisfying those preferences because, you know, you, you, through the, you know, invisible hand of buying and selling, you see what products fail, you see what people will. So my argument here, and it comes from a theological standpoint, and I've always, you know, I take the Christian theological approach to capitalism. That's the lens there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Augustine was very, very interested in the will. Mm-hmm. And so one of the sort of classic statements among, you know, theologians on the will is that, you know, the will inclines towards good in that people only want things if they perceive some good in them. 
And then what capitalism does is it incentivizes uh, producers to manipulate your will to cause you to perceive a good where there isn't one. Yes, it yes. It changes your will. So if you remember that, remember the debate I had with, with Brian Kaplan? Is it Brian? I think it's just Brian. Oh, okay. I don't think uh, it's an exotic <laughs> pronunciation. <laughs> they would be really good if he did. I think I would do that if that was my name. Yeah. And uh, so we're, we're debating Brian Kaplan at uh, Liberty Con. Um, and when Liberty Con contacted me and asked me to debate, I was like, you should just have Matt debate him because Matt's much more of like a numbers and, you know, figures type guy. And I figured that's what your audience will be into. And they were like, you know, we kind of prefer your temperament uh, over Matt's. And I was like, man, if I haven't heard that before, I, ha I harbor the suspicion that a lot of people who ask me to debate in favor of socialism don't ask you because they want someone they perceive as easier to beat, like a girl. Well, but what is even, I don't even know what the perception is based on because, I mean, it's just based on tweeting. <laughs> that's not like Twitter well, when you, is you're Twitter's very not blunt real. When you, do, when you do appearances and stuff. Yeah, I have not had a chance to debate, unfortunately. I, I think that they, I think that, you know, everyone who turns you down in favor of me is a coward. Someone will make the mistake one day of actually putting me in a debate and I'll either collapse and be like, man, I'll be like the old, the like <laughs> former football player who's like tries no. to tries to like go to a pickup game and just no. like breaks his back no. or, or I'll like I'll be right back in my old glory and then it'll be it'll be devastating. No, it's it's in you. It's a part of you. You can still snap and do it at any time. I mean, you like own my mom in conversations. Well, I don't I don't think that's true. Not intentionally, perhaps, but it in does, any case, it does happen in any. Uh, case. And so I was debating uh, uh, Kaplan and I said, you know, I made this point about capitalism, the will. I said, you know, capitalism is out there manipulating your will, reshaping it, changing it and making it worse, making it perceive and inclined to goods and things that are not actually good. Right. Tricking it in some sense and bending it. Uh, and Kaplan said, no, if I want French fries, I just go buy French fries. I want a French fry. I go buy a French fry. That's as simple as that. It's free as you can be. I'm free. My will is free. If I want a French fry, I go get a French yeah. fry. And I was like, it's the most perfect example. It's a really good one. Because that a is counter example. Because that is the, one of the many, uh, key ways we'll discuss in which capital. And by that, I mean, fast food. Um, you know, that's one of the many ways in which capital fucks with your will and causes you to become addicted in ways that make it difficult for your will to be free to pursue what is actually good. Right. Yes. The short of it is that they, food scientists manipulate the formula. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But we're going to keep the listeners on by starting with sex. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the plan. Um, that's our that's our nefarious plan. Yeah, or uh, give me one second to kind of state r the same point, but in in the uh, you know economist language. Oh, so Matt's going to give you the 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 male version here. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. So the model is, and I, I, you know, I'm someone who likes markets to some degree. <laughs> Love them markets. <laughs> but this is an interesting case where the critique is against markets itself, not against private ownership. Yeah. Um, like you could have public ownership and a consumer market that was similarly dysfunctional. But the general model you have and the model that Kaplan is picking on on is that people have what, what they call exogenous preferences, mm -hmm. meaning that these are preferences that are sort of separate. They're, they're pre-existing. They're freestanding. They are mm -hmm. what they are. They just kind of come from you unaffected by the rest of the world 
And then you can go into the market and you go and satisfy those exogenous preferences. But what we actually seem to recognize is that preferences are, to a great degree, endogenous, Mm -hmm. meaning that they are affected by the market itself. It's Mm -hmm. not that you have exogenous preferences that you go to satisfy in the market. It's that the market gives you Mm -hmm. preferences that you then have to go to it to get. It's a sort of induced demand. They induce the demand. That's, of course, what marketing is all about. And then, of course, the way the products themselves are created can have that effect, which is what we'll go get into with some of this recent writing about sex and sure. all that sort of stuff. So last week, uh, I think it was last week, a, a big essay came out about why young people are having less sex. Yeah, there was the, the Atlantic, I feel like, was the jumping off point. And this spurred this, yeah, there was a, there were many response articles. There was the Politico, yeah. there was Ross Doubt that, and the New York Times. Yeah. And, and so, then there so was give, Red me, give me a general overview. What What is the view on why people are having, young people are having less sex? Oh, the article is so long. You know I don't read long articles. <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, <laughs> I read long text messages. No, there's a t- there was a ton of stuff going on in it. And there is, of course, in the now vast secondary literature online, any explanation possible. The one that I suppose is relevant to this discussion is related to porn or even just what you might generally think of as sex substitute products. Because yeah. some of it is not even porn. Like there was like these Japanese masturbation eggs and like stuff like that sounds lovely um so you know it's sort of broadly speaking i guess uh sex substitutes that are provided by the market i have to admit up front i think it's fair to admit up front i don't like porn and uh and i i mean i'm sure some of it is uh just my moral reasoning being from the you know the position i am but part of it is that I've seen like a ton of documentaries that are just following up with people who've worked in porn and it just seems like a really god awful industry. Well, yes, 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 but yeah. and the, the key there though, I think that that would have been the really strong argument and still is a, a strong argument about like the problematic nature of it is yeah. it has bad labor practices, it does. which is true of a lot of markets, but that one in particular seems really like excessive in that regard. Um, but the point here is it's not just the labor market of the porn industry is bad it's that the consumer market is causing problems and that is in all of the articles so so here's what i found interesting about the argument uh that porn is is reducing like real sex among people the one way of arguing that is saying well when you have a lot of sex substitutes you just have options and it's the easier route you know and then the other one is the argument uh, that porn has actually reshaped the kind of sex people want to have such that it's actually kind of a drag, especially for women, right? And yes, the third yes. is that porn has reshaped the kind of sex people want to have such that normal kind of sex with a normal-looking person who's going to have some acne spots and maybe a pimple on their butt and like a little bit of pudge or body hair, it's made that unacceptable. Yeah. It's no longer, it no longer registers in your brain as arousing. Right. Right. It's basically, uh, you know, killed off the ordinary attraction and replaced it with this other kind of desire, uh, which is in fact fake, right? Or comes from surgery, camera work, etc. 
And so it reminded me of Baudrillard, who's a, who's a favorite of Matt's and mine. <laughs> I, I, yes, I like him for the humor as opposed to the maybe theory. the inside. I mean, obviously, he's got some good things and bad things like anyone. Uh, I love Baudrillard. Matt uh, introduced me to Baudrillard in college and then when he was in college and I was in high school. And, and then Baudrillard became uh, an ex, uh, a favorite of mine. Uh, French intellectual in the, in, the, in the great spirit of French intellectuals. Totally curmudgeonly. Just uh, somewhat out of his mind. A little bit um, crazy. <laughs> Very good. Long sentences. Funny. And so he has this theory of simulacra and simulation, right? And, and the simulacra happens when the representation precedes and determines the real. Sure, yeah. The representation of the thing, in this case, sex. Life-mimicking art, in a sense. Don't confuse anyone. And so the, the thing itself, sex, is now preceded by the representation, which then determines the real. Yeah, so when you that's think, chronologically true. That's just chronologically true. So when Based you, on age. When you think about teenagers, they're yep. hitting porn before they actually have sex. Yep. This is true for a lot of young men, and especially the young men of our generation. And then porn determines the real. It begins to shape what you think the real thing is. Right. Even though porn itself is a fake representation. Right. And so the map becomes more real than the city. Right. This is the postmodern condition in which you're living in the simulacra, Baudrillard says. And I think that's a really good point. In fact, in the Atlantic article, just to quote it, um, the new runner up this year for most popular searches on the porno hub dot uh, net uh, was hentai uh, which which Matt tells me is is uh, Japanese cartoon porn. Uh, Maureen O'Connor, this is now quoting Yardle, describes the way that hentai transmogrifies body parts, eyes bigger than feet, breasts the size of heads, penises thicker than waists, and eroticizes the supernatural, sexy human shapes combined with candy-colored fur and animal horns, ears and tails. So this is like a, a prime example of... Uh, one step further than porn. So you think of people who are starting out with like normal porn that's just a camera filming actors and hentai is a simulation of that. Yeah, It's yeah, a yeah. simulation of a simulation. Yeah. Like at the beginning, you're, you're looking at a fake item that is uh, symbolizing people having sex right. in real life. And now you're dealing with something that in fact symbolizes the symbolization yeah. of people having sex in It is life. a referent, an evolution off of porn right. as opposed to being directly... Right. It's downstream dialectically from porn. Right. And so now people are having the opportunity to have their sense of what sex is and what it ought to be like and what it ought to feel like in some sense and maybe a very small sense, right? But in some sense, determined by this thing, which is in fact a simulation of a simulation... And as you were saying, that's the fear of like the sex robot world, but it's already here. It's already here. We're, we're, we're already there. We already have, yes. I mean, essentially simulated sex. Uh, you know, I mean, we've had that for a long time, but yeah. it's it's gotten to the point of high quality enough that it is taking, yeah. you might say, market share away from from ordinary sex. Because that, that's sort of my, when I read this, I felt like some of the framing was a little bit not as perfect as I would have liked because yeah. to me, the cleanest way to think about it is like, you know, 
in an economist market kind of term and say, instead of talking about how these things are impinging upon sex, yeah, you say, well, we have this thing, let's not call it sex, but let's maybe for more universalist reasons, call it like the orgasm market. Yeah. And in the orgasm market, you have a lot of different players, mm-hmm. you know, you <laughs> have what ordinary sex and then you have porn and then you have devices yeah. of some sorts like the eggs or the other toys. And, yeah. and then you've got uh, you've got also sex workers. Uh, yeah, you've got sure. a, n- a number of options. And what appears to be happening is not that the orgasm market is getting smaller. In mm-hmm. fact, it probably is getting a little bigger mm-hmm. it's that the market share of the non-sex the non-ordinary sex mm-hmm. options their market share is just exploding yeah and that seems to be like the primary mechanism it's just they're taking share because they can offer so much more yeah that m- more like push pushes the buttons in the brain but right. then the secondary aspect of it is not just market share, but there is probably a secondary aspect, which is what the pieces are picking up on. And that is that these um, alternatives don't just steal orgasm yeah. market share. It's that they also so fry the brain mm-hmm. that they diminish, you know, your willingness, just objective willingness to do normal sex acts because they're not as pleasurable because your brain has been brought to such a high watermark yeah yeah that you that's can't the thing go down and so i think and there there's some studies on this there's research on porn kind of ratcheting it up mm-hmm. and up and up and up into simulation upon simulation upon simulation and also upon extreme upon extreme so like uh here's a great study 2012 reddit nofap produced a member survey oh i'm not sure if i would call that a study but well, uh know, in the in the world of a study i guess it's an attempt it's an it's a shot in the you know to not to not use a pun which found that over 60 percent of its members sexual tastes experience significant escalation through multiple porn genres so some people said to the question did your did your taste in pornography change 29 percent said my taste did not change significantly 36 percent said my taste became increasingly extreme or deviant and this caused me to feel shame or stress Mm-hmm. 27% said my taste became increasingly extreme or deviant and this did not cause me to feel shame or stress. Oh, well, now right. you are dealing with people who don't want to masturbate. So you're going to be getting a particular These are sample. people who have developed a pathological, right. a self-admitted pathological. So at least some of these people are saying, you know, it, the, the, rat, it, it, the ratcheting up hit me. It worked. Right. I was attracted to more and more niche and deviant and more violent or whatever. Uh, and I think some other studies have attempted to kind of track that down as well. And then, so then that has impacts, like I was saying, on forming the idea of sex. Of course, yes. So there are studies that show, uh, this one ran, uh, there was an article about it, ran on NPR, that, uh, you know, it's, it is correlated with divorce. We found that Americans who began uh, using pornography are roughly twice as likely to be divorced. Uh, and the theory of the researchers was... Um, creates unrealistic portraits in people's minds about how sexual relationships are supposed to function. Yeah. And so I think actually uh, in the article, it, it, it points out that, you know, certain things that have become commonplace in porn, like anal sex. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of women find very painful and unpleasant. 
and it's transferring over for sure. Right. And so you see the, the dialectical, but you know, the dialectic between real life and porn, people learn about what this is supposed to be like from a simulation and then transfer it over to real life. And then it doesn't work like the simulation because it's real. And then the real life thing becomes disappointing. Yeah. And the simulation is more pleasing. Yeah. And then the simulation gets more market share even still. Right. You turn back to it, yeah. Because so, you tried the other product and it was it was not as good. And this isn't to this isn't to judge anybody's, you know, for for using porn, right? Because it's part of a planned market campaign, yeah, right? That's you're, the key, I think. Yeah, or you're not an idiot for falling victim to it, right? That's yeah. I think that's the key inside where where I feel like we depart to some degree from these pieces, which are treating this like a sui generis sex thing. Yeah. And our position, you know, to to whatever degree is is that this is not a sui generis sex no, thing. No. This is a this is what happens in consumer markets where it's possible. Like when you have right. a kind of thing right. that is essentially an appetitive... appetitive yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've a, also an, read that word and don't know how an to say appetite it. An appetite-focused market. Yeah. The nature of market competition is that it just blitzes as far as it can go right. and degrades non-market alternatives, which can't keep up. When you have a small, maybe modest appetite for something... The goal of the market is to blow it up to as huge as it possibly can be because they want you to give them as much money, views, clicks, whatever, as right. they can possibly get. And then to add as many appetites as they can. That's true right? as well. If yeah. you have an appetite for something, they're going to say, here, have an appetite for a million. There's a great line out of a poem, I think, is by Louise Gluck, and it's about Hades. Uh, and I think she, I think Persephone speculates about him. Uh if you have one appetite, you probably have them all. And I think that is a, uh, a, uh, a, a big bet placed by companies that are competing in the market for orgasm share. Is that if you don't have an appetite right now, I can give it to you. Yes. And I can increase the ones you do have or change them in some way. Right. But the, question, the, uh, you know, the question is, is it, is it good for you? There's the customer acquisition component where they have to go out and find people who may not necessarily be interested. And of course, that's why you see ads and marketing and so on. And then there's uh, after you get the acquire the customer in the first place, there's the ratcheting up uh, and, you know, essentially addicting or at least attempting to addict to yeah. the product. In fact, um, this poem is even more sinister than I remembered it because it's Hades speculating about Persephone as he watches her smell wildflowers. He thinks if you have one appetite, you have them all. And of course, we know how that myth ends, except Matt probably doesn't. Yeah, I'm kind of lost, but you know. Anyway, um, and so I think that's like how you fit the porn story into the story about how these markets are impacting people. Yes. Right. And I think that that takes the pressure off like, because a lot of these stories are formed like weird dopey millennials. Yeah, they're generational I, I think components. That's unfair. I think that's There's, really unfair. Yeah. There's just sort of general cultural, like this is a cultural phenomenon. and there, But at the base of it, I feel like and be, because it's so analogous to other markets, yeah. which we'll get into like food and tech and all the rest yeah. of it, it's, it really seems to be a symptom of a broader problem, which is that in certain product markets, the, sh the way to succeed is through basically trying to maximally addict, maximally push pleasure buttons and yeah. dopamine buttons and all the rest of it. And this is just how you do that in the sex market. In the sex market, right. right. And I mean, you see people kind of buckling under it to some degree. There's like uh, No Nut November. 
Yeah, there there are there's um, the Reddit no fat movement. Yeah, yeah, there there are. There, it's funny. There are you know obviously you've always had like sort of religious um, things, but then there are there are these sort of very in some ways aggressively non-religious. Yeah. You know, like like no no we're not like those people. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but we 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 just you know recognize that this is a problem. Right, um, and I I actually followed a really strange um, no nut November thread on Twitter the other night. Uh, where I, I guess on a Reddit forum, uh, someone had complained that their their partner was engaging in No Not November, and and she was asking like, is this basically a breakupable offense? Like, he ain't not. Wait, wait, so wait, so I actually don't understand. Is No Not November only anti masturbation, or you also? It's can't no nutting, no nutting. Well, I learned well, in this. What is thread. even the point of that? Well, the, and that was in, that was also my question. And but I, as looking through the thread, what people were talking about is they felt like their willpower was under assault, and they just wanted to take okay. it back. Okay, so they kind of just they're over inclusive for an in, for to try to to get even stronger right right and that's how they talk about it they talk about it in like these i mean it's the internet so everything's ironic and stupid sure and and said semi-jokingly but the way they talk about it is like ascension in like almost spiritual terms they're like i'm going to gain total mastery over myself and the the implication is i live in a world where that is really 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 hard so like people know their wills are in some way being manipulated by the world they live in, by the, the you know the pornographization of everything is is one thing people talk about, and but then also just like you know regular porn itself and uh, and the availability of it, and and I think that not all the time and not every day, but sometimes some people clearly kind of chafe under that a little bit to to also risk a, a pun. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, and then I mean, not that it doesn't. Uh, it, manifest in really strange ways like the you know it manifested in this thread in a kind of misogynistic way yeah well yeah surprisingly blaming women uh, for people the don't always the market's doing know how to respond to they people i can identify problems without knowing what to do about them this is yeah. part of the not to yeah. go too far astray but with some of the problems i've had with some of the like personal experience type movements it's like yeah i i believe certainly that people with personal yeah. experience probably have a slightly better ability to identify problems but i don't know that they have a better ability to uh figure out what they're all about and tell you what the solution is and this is i think a classic example of this is you you know people feel a problem and they don't know they could go in all sorts of directions they can go in directions of being like women suck yeah go in directions of being like uh, the markets are the problem uh the culture is the problem there's all sorts of ways that you can go yeah um but there's a hundred things you can blame it on. It's still notable that they're all recognizing it. It's sort of mm-hmm. like, oh, we all recognize alienation under capitalism or something. Yeah. But we go in different directions with it. You might you might go blood and soil fascism. You might go, you know, communist, whatever. Aestheticism. Uh, yeah, you might just retreat, go, uh, yeah. go full on Walden Pond and whatever. It'd be hard to blame you because it's. I think it's easy to sense like ambiently in the air there's something that you don't like about the way these companies are using you. Uh, but it's hard to describe it or know what to do yeah, about it. Yeah, or but even putting companies into the in the claim, or I yeah, that there's too much credit. There's just a, like Mark Fisher would say about capitalism. There's just some eerie f- like ambient force. Yeah, and it's hard to because all of these things look like separate things, right? I mean, especially in the case of porn, it's like, well, these appear to all be coming from different places. What does a cartoon have in common with a studio production? Yeah, have in common with an amateur vid? Thing. 
they all appear to come from a million different places. But then at the end of the day, the same force is actually grinding behind them and, and, and putting them where they are so that you encounter them. Mm hmm. So uh, also came out in that article that uh, one reason people are having less sex is because they just aren't getting married and it's just kind of irregular. You know? Oh, yeah. That, that's part you know? of it. Sure. So yeah. Congrats to us. I mean, weird flex. I know. But less access to yeah. to it from because you're yeah. single or whatever. Um, you could see that. But yeah. But and then the second example that we've been talking about is food. Food is it, yeah, and this brings us back to the Brian Kaplan. Yeah, the French fry. Yeah, there's been a lot of books actually written recently, and it also just seems to be intuitively the case that, you know, large food companies, they hire food scientists to engineer food to reach certain bliss points, mm-hmm. is actually, I think, what they call them, and it's the, the, the researching methods are pretty straightforward. It's like you start with a product that has a certain amount of sugar in it, then you give it to some testers and they say whether they like it or not. Then you increase the sugar and you say, is this better or worse? And they say better. And then you increase the sugar again. You say, is this better or worse? And they say better. And you just keep doing this until they finally say worse. And then, you know, the one right before that, that's the bliss point. And you can do that for all sorts of component ingredients and with salt or whatever else. And you can therefore sort of scientifically determine yeah. what is like maximally going to trigger the brain and get people maximally addicted. And that's like a big part of of the food system at this point. Um, yeah, there's a great quote from um, uh, Michael Moss in the New York Times Magazine article in 2013 called The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food. So just to read it to you. The public and the food companies have known for decades now, or at least since this meeting referenced in the article, that sugary, salty, fatty foods are not good for us in the quantities that we consume them. So why are the diabetes and obesity and hypertension numbers still spiraling out of control? It's not just a matter of poor willpower on the part of the consumer and a give-the-people-what-they-want attitude on the part of food manufacturers. What I found over four years of research and reporting was a conscious effort taking place in labs and marketing meetings and grocery store aisles to get people hooked on foods that are convenient and inexpensive. I talked to more than 300 people, formerly employed or employed by the processed food industry from science to marketers to CEOs. Some were willing whistleblowers, while others spoke reluctantly when presented with some of the thousands of pages of secret memos that I obtained from inside the food industry's operations. What follows a series of small case studies of a handful of characters whose work, then and perspective now, sheds light on how the foods are created and sold to people who, while not powerless, are extremely vulnerable to the intensity of these companies' industrial formulations and selling campaigns. So I'm like, yeah, you want a French fry, but what is the nature of that want? Yes, it is an induced induced desire, an induced preference. Right. Um, at least to some degree. And they, there, there was a quote from a Coca-Cola executive I saw in a similar story a while ago. I think it was about massive diabetes in one of these towns that is just like full of Coke. And I thought it was really, it was interesting because it was like the way I might think about how you would run a company that sold Coke, uh-huh. which was... <laughs> Our goal is to try to get as many ounces of Coke through as many bodies as possible. Uh-huh. 
Exactly. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah. It's so, it's like, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. That is actually, you think about what is your charge as the Coke company man who is supposed to compete in a market? Well, what quantity is relevant? The quantity is how many ounces of Coke am I pushing through human bodies? That's the quantity right. that I'm trying to max. And it's like, okay, well, how do I max that? Right. Well, I create it and try to make it as addicting as possible and all yeah. the rest of it. Um, but like, obviously that is separate from what we should want to achieve through yeah. this market. Like the mechanisms of competition in this market are such that yeah. you unavoidably reach that conclusion. Right. This is the nature of it. It's not even just like, well, this evil corporation, like to some degree, sure. But like if we're going to talk about invisible hands, right. this is a perfect case where we're like, well, the invisible hand of a market in food consumption, right. the way that that leads just through an evolutionary process of uh, uh, some companies succeed and some companies fail yeah. is a scenario where the surviving companies at the end of this iterative process are yeah. just like addiction peddlers right and so it's like it's the exact same process and procedure as the as the first industry we talked about where it's like you have an appetite for food right i know you have an appetite is it possible that we can blow it up by pushing on the brain buttons and then add a bunch on right you know shit you didn't even know about if you're a if you're a you know person who's only ever eaten normal healthy food cooked at home the first time you taste a wendy's cheeseburger you're like oh my god there's just so much happening here. Yeah. There's so much texture. There's so much flavor. It's amazing. Mouthfeel. Mouthfeel is very important. <laughs> and then like, and then, you know, after that, eating, you know, what you make at home, like a bean soup, a lentil stew, uh, you know, the things that are cost effective and easy to buy. It feels like you're eating cardboard. Yes. Well, and, that, and, that, and that's the equivalent to the sex, right? Right, right, it's exactly. Like the de decommodified home production of food simply right. cannot beat McDonald's. It just it can't, can't beat, beat it. it. It can't beat it. it it's just scientifically like, impossible. Yeah, and yeah, and it's the, the same thing in porn and all the rest. So it's like the nature of this consumer market is that it, it just it 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 does yes outcompete the decommodified home versions but only through these really nefarious ways that lead to all sorts of dysfunction in this case obesity in the case of sex you know whatever you know uh, uh, relationship yeah. strain and all the rest of it yes exactly so it's like look there are scientists sitting around in labs who are paid a lot of money to figure out how they can make food that is good for your body totally disgusting to you yeah like that is what they're doing they're they're getting paid money by capital yeah to make sure that the things that you could eat that would make you feel good and live a long time are disgusting and repellent to right. you and those are the proper incentives of the market right it's not a distortion this is not perverse. It's yeah not, it's not yeah and it's not fraud no it's just this is how it goes and this is how it has to go if right. your company does not go tit for tat you will go under right straight up because your products right. won't sell Right, exactly. And so it's like, look, you can absolutely, again, it's like you look at people who are obese and people treat them like, oh, these people just have a failure of willpower or they're just, uh, you know, they're weak or they're stupid. And I'm like, not at all, man. This is the market working the way it is extremely well-funded and tailored and scientifically designed to work. Yeah, by, right? by hacking 
biological weaknesses, basically. That's what they hone in on. And they lie to you. I mean, they don't lie straight up because there are laws against it, but the food companies do the best they can to mask what's going on. So like when we, we experience this shopping for food for our daughter. Yeah. That, this is one of the things that has uh, turned the tide. I guess I should have put that in the the first one. Open, opened our minds. We're woke now because of this. It's like you, you go to get yogurt for a child. And you are, of course, faced with a billion options. I think Catherine Pickstock, who was one of the greats at Cambridge that a bunch of my friends studied under, said that modernity is standing in a grocery aisle looking at a million things that are possible that you can't have uh-huh. <laughs> um, or you can't choose. You become paralyzed by the choice, but that's aside the point. And you're like, okay, so which one of these yogurts is like good for a baby? Right. You know, and there's no sign that's like, this is the yogurt that isn't full of sugar. This is the one you should give to a baby. The way that they market them, what you were pointing out, the one today. The wee. The wee It like comes in a little glass pot. It's glass. Ooh, it must be fancy. It seems kind of artisanal Yeah, and it's called wee. It looks French. It looks like like what skinny French ladies eat. Right, and they're like, so this isn't shitty American yogurt like Yoplait. Yeah. This is a French-style European yogurt. And you're like, okay. It doesn't have a dinosaur on the... Yeah, it's it's not like... Or Spider-Man or something. It's sophisticated, Whole Foods ash yogurt. Okay, yeah. So, like, uh, that seems like something that might be healthy. And then you look at it, the back, and it's solid sugar. It's (laughs) ice cream, basically. It has... it has more than half the daily recommended amount of sugar for a two-year-old. Just just eating that would get you, you know, I didn't do the exact math, but it's like, oh, no, actually it did. It was 60%. <laughs> it gets you 60% of the way there. So, you know, and it's true. And it's, it's what's really sad about it or uncomfortable about it from the standpoint of a parent is parenting is, you know, it takes a lot of time. It takes a, a big cognitive load yeah a lot of effort and that sort of thing and it's like and then at the same time as all of this the food system of my society is conspiring (laughs) against me and i'm having to be on defense at all times i can't just go into the supermarket and there's like an area where it's like yep you buy this stuff and you're for sure good it's like no no uh like 80 percent of this stuff you got to be careful with the kid because she'll become it'll create neurological addictions or 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 she'll overeat it right and so it's very hard to resist a kid it's very hard because the and these companies know that once your kid has had a sugary yogurt they're never going to want you know a normal yogurt yeah you give her a normal yogurt now and it's like and i mean like you can transition through it you just got to power through it for a little bit but but it's hard and she'll go around (laughs) going yogurt 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 yogurt. (laughs) because she wants that right thing which was basically candy and you're like look man i'm sorry that uh you ever tasted that i was doing my best but i made a mistake yeah it's hard not to make a mistake because everything is conspired against you. right everything is conspiring against you and you're like look i i want to give you food that is not going to hurt you and by hurting you i not only mean like making you you know overloading you with sugar at the moment a risk for diabetes runs in matt's family so we're very careful about that um, and oh, but I also don't want to like let these companies fuck up your will. Yes. And addict you and distort your appetites in ways that make life hard for you. Yes. Yes. It's a sort of one way ratchet. Right. She can't. If you get her going on it, then it's going to be hard to get her down. Yeah. And 
but it's so hard not to step on that minefield. It's just like any other drug. Right, exactly. It's like, don't try that first cigarette. Uh, you know, it's everything turns into everything that has any kind of sensory element to it uh, turns into a vice yeah. in, in normal, ordinary, regular, plain, healthy capitalist competition. That's where it winds up because that's how you will succeed. You will not succeed putting out a flavorless yogurt yeah <laughs> that has no sugar in it right you know yo play is gonna kill you yeah if you're like look this yogurt won't hurt your child right or you inevitably there i guess forms a kind of undercurrent of product for people who are very sophisticated and know what they're looking but for how it's, many of them it's so hard to find you know because because not because people are stupid not because yeah. they're ignorant but because they're so thoroughly outmatched by these companies right Right. And that's how, only for like kids. Right. How many individual consumers, if anything, right. can compete with multimillion dollar corporations that are paying scientists, artists, writers, I mean, tons and tons and tons of uh, funding, tons of studies just to deceive and manipulate you? Like, how do you compete with it's that? It's really you're, hard. You're up against such a, a massive force. Working full time and caring for a Raising kid. A and kid then you've got to, it's the same thing with all the like, you know, almost sort of libertarian notions of, oh, well, the, you don't need a regulation. The market will, will punish bad actors. And it's nope. like, well, okay, so under this world, I need to spend a few hours each day basically reading consumer reports <laughs> and trying to judge. And also, uh, let's not forget that they will themselves flood review sites with of course. stuff. So you got to navigate that also. Markets will punish um, bad actors, but markets will also change what you think bad is. Yeah. And um, it makes it impossible for you to defend yourself against them, you know, up to a point. They have this... Uh, the the most egregious is the uh, the mots for tots, which, <laughs> which I we actually did purchase for a little bit because it was like oh okay it's like juice or whatever, and it's for tots, yeah. <laughs> and then we very quickly got off that because you could tell immediately that it was like juice juice juice. Um, at times it didn't make sense, but it's like this is an this is horrible. It's like they are literally putting in their marketing yes. materials this is for children this is for babies. and it's meant to disarm you because yeah. maybe you heard that you shouldn't have juice but they're like this is low sugar juice and it's like that's still bad it's <laughs> like, like oh this is 40 percent less sugar than the original version that has ten thousand grams of sugar yeah. it's like oh this is still an unhealthy amount of sugar right um, and uh, and uh there's all kinds of i mean you see juice commercials on tv it's always like a little child with their grandpa being like i love juicy juice yeah or like welch's nothing but grapes but right. it's like there's so much that goes on between the grape and the and the juice bottle i mean but this is all like i think a lot of people know advertising isn't legit yes well advertising yeah is a way of inducing demand it is the most endogenous uh, approach you know the thing that forms endogenous preferences the most explicit version of it but i but mean essentially they only need one little crack yeah get you in and we're seeing this now with other products Right, like uh, opioids. Um, opioids are a good example. Oh, this is a doctor thing. It's like, oh, you're just giving people heroin and addicting yeah. them to heroin. That, that's like all it is. And they don't ever um, get a chance to resist it because once you try it, in a lot of cases... Oh, once you're, you're on, fucked. I watched this... We watched this... Um, thing on nova pbs that was yeah. all about addiction and specifically about opioid and like what happens in the brain when you try to quit and like they were like man it's basically impossible like your brain is like you're dying buddy yeah <laughs> like, exactly uh like that's what happens and but like this sort of neuro hacking if you will 
is present in all sorts of markets that we don't think about as vices anymore, or they find ways around. So opioids is a way around uh, the fact that, yeah, you can't sell heroin or people have a really negative image of heroin. So you'll do it through a pill form that nonetheless achieves the same thing. Food does that. And then you've got now like jewels everyone's against tobacco right everyone's against smoking smoking's been on the decline due to a major government effort to like hide them you can't advertise them anymore they're all like there's a huge effort to restrict them and it's like oh we have this new thing now jewels which teenagers are apparently in the millions getting addicted (laughs) to which is just like nicotine vape pen or whatever that it just like just tickles the brain just bursts it with right. energy. I, I think you can get um, jewels with flavors, right? Like so it's just Yeah, and awesome. the and the New York Times had a piece now and they're saying that they're that's they're eliminating a lot of their flavors, but they're still gonna keep mint, which is mm-hmm. the main one that that's really all. people really like. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, there's that. And then the other industry is, is the tech. And this is a yeah. little bit, um, this is kind of well trod at this point, but it's worth pointing out since it's on theme that there's a lot of research that's, you know, basically about how devices are addicting and, 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 and that they're engineered to be that way. And then there seems to be an undercurrent in Silicon Valley of people who are like, this is really immoral. I really don't like what we're doing, you know, like, like stuff like putting the little red number you know, where it's like you, you have one, two, three, four, whatever, like unread things on Facebook or unread things on Twitter. Like that's designed to, to like get you going or like the little noises on your app when you update the Twitter. Yeah, yeah, goes, little haptics. Like that's literally just like Pavlovian ringing a bell with food yeah. and like, and like the infinite scroll is another thing. Like there are all these design choices that are basically meant to just say, here's how we can maximize mm-hmm. the attention market. Mm-hmm. That's another market that's kind of appetite ish. Mm-hmm. And we can use addicting ploys to dominate that market. Just like the food manufacturers dominate it. And then once again, what does it crowd out? It crowds out decommodified interaction. Right. People are like they say, we're at a restaurant and everyone's just on their phone or whatever. But like the common theme there is, well, yeah, the phone, (laughs) they're much better at stimulating you than human to human decommodified interaction. The food companies are better at at getting at making you feel more pleasure than at home decommodified production. The porn companies are better at making you feel more pleasure than decommodified regular sex. And the phone companies and the tech companies are better at. Uh, making you feel more pleasure than person-to-person decommodified communication. And it's sort of like, those are just some examples, but it's like, that's how it's working. And that that is how the consumer market must work. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And I I think it it, it manifests in so many different Right. In, in environments and they're all areas where we have an appetite, right? Yeah. You want sex, and, and you want key. food, you want contact. Food like key areas, right? Yeah, like key the, areas. it's like well, you want to talk about alienation. Obviously there are a lot of things going on, but it's like this these particular markets, the one we're talking about here, are so key yeah. to human connection that like I could see a very strong argument that's like a lot of the alienation is these consumer markets and how they're dysfunctional. Yeah, absolutely. They're messing up your relationships with sex. They're messing up your communication with other people, right. which is a huge part of it. They're messing up sort of food, which has always been a big cultural thing. We right. eat together and so on. They're messing up those avenues, which are right. like the key parts of relationship building, which are key parts of happiness in a social animal. They're coming in and just wrecking them. Yeah. 
and and changing what you want out of them yeah yeah then they're not even pleasurable it's not even just like oh yeah um the the the, you know in addition to um in addition to them just like taking more of your attention away or taking more of your calories away or taking more of your orgasms away they also just you know make the other experience itself negative like to the extent that you continue to do it you're kind of like "Mm, you're just disappointed yeah everything seems kind of pale and colorless compared to the shit you can get on the market right sex compared to porn it's like what is this this person doesn't look perfect and also they like have will you know they have a they have interests of their own and like they're not they don't perform for me and uh and like the uh the sex is not in porn the sex is like isolated from real life it's like you just take the sex and like clip it out of a real relationship or real human context but in real life sex is like part of an ongoing something with this person and like also you're tied into the community with them in some way your friends know them they know you i mean it complicates things hugely and this is like look isn't this product so much better doesn't it just push directly on the brain button Yeah, it's, in uh, a totally uncomplicated way? And the same thing with, you know, with the food, right? I mean, it's, you know, how, how can, a, how can you know, the chicken soup I made today ever stack up to a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich? Yeah. I mean, it just, I can't Indeed. compete. Yeah, I mean, or, or if you competed by somehow becoming as sophisticated as them, you would yeah. s- you would recreate the same. I would recreate the <laughs> same problem, Yeah, right? you would solve the, well, you would solve the problem of, of, of them beating out decommodified alternatives, but only by turning the decommodified alternative into a health problem itself. So then, uh, like, <laughs> when you want to pull away from the market and say, like, no, I don't want the simulacra, I want the real thing, what you're faced with is there's a steep decline. The, yeah, the the hedonic pleasure declines, at least initially. Right. I don't know. I, I, I am kind of of the mind with no evidence whatsoever. Perhaps, That's optimistic. That uh, there's a readjustment, right? That, you know, if you've gone a few years, you, you sort of, that starts to fade and you get used to where you are and then your happiness levels also return because, yeah. you know, happiness is relative to expectations and so on. And so long as you've kind of lost a working memory of the uh, uh the w- your brain turned up to 11 <laughs> you yeah, know like if you if you um, want to quit uh opioids if you want to quit processed food if you want to quit porn if you want to quit any of those things what you get in real life and oftentimes is better for you as you know if you were in a problematic place before right but that doesn't mean it feels as good because yeah. it's not engineered to push those buttons yeah not in at least not initially and perhaps never right and um, so and i mean so these companies are doing a very evil thing yeah basically. it's a one-way ratchet right at least in you know i think like i said maybe you can start a slow decline but it that's the basic issue and so then like the only solution and this is the thing that is so irritating with respect to the kid is because it's a one-way ratchet one failure point like that's it yeah i mean it's not literally it because she is young and you have some time to recreate like i don't think the fact that she had a few juices or whatever like but that's sort of what you're up against you know if she gets to that point she will have a very difficult time coming back down and so the strategy then is you have to somehow keep her 
from ever getting up to that point. You have to yeah. keep her from staying at a normal level, which to her will be fine because she will never know what she's not missing. It's sort of like, you know, I don't crave opioids because I've never had them. I don't feel at all um, uh, like I'm missing out by not doing opioids. Right. Um, but like people who have gotten on them do at that point just physiologically feel that way and so you got to stop her from ever getting hooked but everything in society has conspired against you on that right she goes to Um, a she goes to a you know a birthday party at the park there's pizza and juice right you know or like well yeah just generally yeah it's like okay yeah there's a general issue of like how do you stop when the rest of society but even me like you know on nights where we, we have a bunch of people over we're really busy it's like you know we've ordered a pizza before and given her cut up piece of pizza and she loves it yeah, I, I don't think that that and is necessarily, I mean, y- y- but yeah. I always feel like now is, you know, tomorrow morning when I have to get her to eat, uh, you know, barely sweetened oatmeal, is she just going to be like, what the hell? This isn't giving me the rush of pizza. Right. And I'm going to be like, yeah, I know. I'm really sorry. Like, I, yeah. I, I feel bad about it. And, yeah. I, and I think that, you know, I think the important key takeaway for the whole theme of the podcast is like, this isn't an individual problem. You that can't can solve be, it individually. That's right. what I was trying to get at with that. Right. It's not an individual thing where like there are just individual bad consumers who need yeah. to be disciplined into better consumption. It's not that. It's a big systematic sure. problem. And I mean, there are things maybe, you know, I do, you know, with food, maybe we can uh, put it off or with some other things. But like especially with, for instance, the communication apps or that sort yeah. of thing. It's like, OK, you can't do without these apps because you would have to unplug entirely from society and that's really what you'd have to do with some of the other stuff as well i mean it remind me in some ways of like although i did push through like when you're in college if you don't want to drink which i never wanted to do in part because of this problem that i've identified which like well well a lot of people have alcohol problems and addiction problems with alcohol i'd rather just not even risk it um, but you, you, you're like inundated with it and it's like, well, shit, I feel, you know, it's like I can become a recluse uh, or the only way to avoid this is to become a recluse, which no one wants to do. And then that, that that's true of the apps. That's true to some degree with the food. That's, you know, um, it's also true of the porn. I mean, if no one is having sex uh, among young people, you can like quit the stuff. But like now what? Everyone else is still in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It doesn't fix, uh, you know, a systematic problem can't be fixed by individual activity on the part of one person. Yeah. It's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. It's very um, hard. So, you know, you know, I think that's the basically the lesson of the, you know, it's like as so with so all Matt things. has put the baby on Soylent is what I'm as saying. As with all things, it's systems. Well, Soylent was an, is another interesting. No, we're not actually feeding the baby Soylent. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> We, we've got her on, you know, normal, like, toast and whatever. She likes toast. 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 Um, <laughs> she loves toast, and she doesn't want me to cut it out. She just runs around with a whole piece of toast. She wants and just, a whole piece. And just gnaws on it. Yeah, she puts too much. She stopped wanting to cut up bananas as well, which is actually quite convenient. Yeah, she just, you peel the banana, she eats the she banana. She just gnaws it all the way down. Uh, um, the other night, she just, I, like, spent a bunch of time making her a dinner, and she just wanted, like, two-thirds of a banana and five grapes. Yeah. I was like, whatever, dude. It's up to you, I guess. This would have been like ambrosia to an ancient person. So <laughs> It's all relative. <laughs> it's all That's relative. That's part of the issue. You with have the truly feasted for a Neolithic baby. <laughs> the hedonic treadmill. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I think so, you know, I mean, to tie a bow around, it's like, yep, yeah, this is an overall systematic problem. It's the same thing with all of these things where, you know, 
in general, people focus so much on individual stuff, whether it's poverty or whatever. Yeah. And like, yeah, as an individual, you need to do as best as you can. But but like it's just, hard, you know, if the whole market system is conspired against you to try to hook you and addict you and yeah. and various things, it's very difficult to avoid that. And that is also um, something that is very, very difficult to fix within the context of a market economy and, and with the consumer market, you know, because that is the end result of such a market. That's how it goes. And it all the pieces like that. that are like sex, sex, sex should take a step back and recognize that it's not an issue with, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a culture story. It's not as it's a, it's a story about market economy yeah, and exactly that that story actually applies to all of these adjacent markets. The um, same thing with, you know, shitty pieces that take pot shots at obese people and, people who struggle with food it's like look they're up against something you can't even imagine the size of it I mean, yeah they're up against the same thing that makes it hard to quit opioids right. or anything like that that the, there's a whole industry setting up there to yeah. to entrap them rich um, people have a lot of time on their hands i think that must be the reason they can do the the you know uh yeah i mean there are other aspects you know um access to nutritionists yeah, that's true. i mean there's there's some things that can be done but affluent people in the u.s i mean it is true that obesity is correlated with income more negatively correlated so that the poor people have higher obesity rates but it's not non-existent among affluent yeah. people and it's been going up and up and up there as well it's yeah. just at a lower level so everyone is you know potentially affected yeah but so that's what we wanted to talk to you about hope you had a good thanksgiving sorry if we just messed it up <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't think we, uh, you know, uh, Thanksgiving is a good counterexample. I it's, ate a whole turkey. It's decommodified food production and it tastes fucking awful. So Well, so there's a good counterexample. There you go. <laughs> Just every, every, make every meal uh, a meal like that, you know. They're like, today we feast on garbage. I don't know, it's good for you though. You're like, because like that's really what it's like to be a pilgrim, like, or to be like living in like 1600s Jamestown, is to eat something and be like, oh, this is fine, I guess. Mm. <laughs> like, it's Wait, just like no, total, no, no. It, the the hack is trash. just. It, this is a large quantity. Yeah, it's this a, is a huge quantity wow. of pure oats. Ugh. Ugh. A lot of boiled meat, but there's uh, a lot of it. That means yeah. I'm living large. Living it's just large. This like, <laughs> is like a quantity based theory. Yeah, that's of, true. That's true. All right. Well, All right. uh, have a good one. We'll be listening. back with a special guest next episode. All right. We're, w this will happen. This I'm, is actually uh, next episode. 95%. You sure. have to trust us. If it doesn't happen, it's not our fault because we did set it up and everything. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye, All guys. Right, bye.